This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of April the 10th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. In 1979, musician Chuck Surak started a business in Fort Wayne called Sweetwater Sound by creating a mobile recording studio in a Volkswagen bus. Fast forward a bit more than four decades, and Sweetwater has evolved into one of the nation's most prominent e-commerce sites for musical instruments and audio gear with $1.6 billion in sales for 2022. Surak and his wife Lisa had total ownership of the company until 2021 when they sold a majority stake to a private equity firm. As you'll hear in this week's podcast, Chuck isn't disclosing how much they made from the sale, but he describes it as more money than anyone should ever have. The Surex have used that money to help further their already extensive philanthropic giving. Chuck also has more time to focus on Surak Enterprises, a collection of companies unrelated to Sweetwater, including several that stem from his interest in aviation. And that's the reason why Chuck has been in the news in Indianapolis in recent weeks. The Indianapolis Airport Authority wants to decommission the Indianapolis downtown heliport, a move that's supported by the city of Indianapolis due to the site's attractiveness for redevelopment. Chuck is helping lead the charge to persuade the Federal Aviation Administration to deny permission to decommission the heliport. Now, Chuck has a helicopter charter company that uses the heliport, but he also joins aviation experts and the Indiana Department of Transportation in arguing that the heliport is uniquely positioned to take advantage of new developments in urban aviation that includes electric aircraft that can take off and land vertically. In this week's edition of the IBJ podcast, we catch up with Surak on his decision to sell a controlling stake in Sweetwater and step away from day-to-day operations. And he also sheds more light on the steps he has taken to keep the heliport open. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Chuck Surak, founder of music industry retailer Sweetwater and the founder and current CEO of Surak Enterprises in Fort Wayne. Thank you for making time today. Thank you for, for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm going to take you back uh, to your senior year of high school, if that's okay. In the mid to late 70s, after you finished high school, tell me if I understand this correctly, you decided you wanted to be a touring musician. Yeah, actually through high school, I had two paths in mind. One, I wanted to to do music. And so I took all the music classes I could take. But I also loved children and I wanted to be a doctor. So I wanted to be a pediatrician. And so I took uh, all the chemistry and Latin and, you know, all the the pre-doctor sort of stuff. And uh, immediately after high school, I went on the road uh, playing saxophone and keyboards all over the country. And I thought I would do that for a year, come back, go to college and, you know, get my get my medical degree. Uh, but you know, life sometimes has different plans for you. And, and after I'd played on the road, not just the one year, but almost five years and you have the music bubbling in your blood, it's hard to consider anything else. And so uh, music's been part of my life ever since. And it's been kind of funny. I've served on various hospital boards and friends with lots of doctors. And, uh, you know, I respect the living daylights out of what they do, but I'm so glad that the path I was given works better for me. Now your dad, if I understand this right, was a chemical engineer. Is that right? It was. Yeah. He got his degree in Northeast Indiana. It used to be called Tri-State. Now it's Trine University. 
he was a chemical engineer and uh, he did that in Southern Ohio for about 20 years. Uh, he was responsible for getting rid of the heat when they did nuclear reactions at a Goodyear atomic energy plant. And at some point he wanted to get back to Fort Wayne where my mom was from. And he took a job at General Electric and changed from being a chemical engineer to being an electrical engineer. And he helped design golf cart motors and washing machine motors and that sort of thing. What did he think about uh, your plan at the end of high school to go on the road? You know, I have to say my dad and my grandfather, who happens to be my mom's father, both were probably the most supportive. Uh, you know, I had a few other uh, jobs. I wouldn't call them careers, but jobs. And, and my dad was the one who said, you know, uh, you know, I, I, my business has gotten really busy doing recording at nights and evenings, weekends, that sort of thing. But I was by daytime, I was working for Hobart Food Equipment, fixing dishwashers and microwave ovens, control systems, electronic stuff. And they were competing both with each other quite a bit. And I was at this crossing point where I really needed, if I was going to go forward with music and recording, I needed to do that full time. And frankly, I was a little concerned to, to lose the, the, the paycheck every that time. They just do paychecks every week. And my dad was the one that said, no, if you don't do it, you'll, you'll always regret it. You ought to just jump off and try. And so he really encouraged me. Um, and so I've been very thankful and blessed that, that he was in that position to do that. I will tell you, I say this a little bit as a joke today, but for the first, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years of my life at Sweetwater, uh, my friends and, and my mom and other grandparents would say, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> they didn't consider it. They don't ask me that anymore. <laughs> but that was definitely after in the early days. You know, when you think about it, a recording studio in Fort Wayne, Indiana, it just made no sense. You'd have a recording studio in Nashville or New York or L.A. And so when am I going to get a real job? But thankfully, they don't ask me that anymore. Before we move on from this, I got to ask, what was uh, the gig that just blew your mind when you were on the road? I mean, somebody you played with that maybe you had always wanted to or. Oh, wow. You know, it, it, I can't tell you it happened when I was on the road. Back in those days, we played six nights a week play nightclubs and, and uh, hotels and all that. Uh, but the gig for me, uh, you know, being a saxophone player, uh, I think the greatest saxophone player who ever lived is a guy named Boots Randolph. And he passed away know, about 13, 14 years ago now. But um, I became friends with Boots in his later years. And Boots is the guy that recorded the big saxophone solo in Rocking Around the Christmas Tree with Brenda Lee. Uh, he had the big song Yakety Sax, which became the hit for the Benny Hill TV show. But Boots and I became good friends, and I got him to come to Fort Wayne uh, back in about 2007 or so to play with our Fort Wayne Philharmonic Orchestra. And he said, I'll do it, but you got to play with me. So I got to play on stage with Boots, and we did a duet of Over the Rainbow and some other stuff. And that's a that's a memory that I'll just never forget. And also doing it in my hometown where all my friends and family could come see me play with the master of all masters. So oh, That's really cool. So the story... Uh, behind the origin of Sweet Waters, and 1979 basically founded it out of a Volkswagen band. I know that these origin stories sometimes pick up some embellishment over the years, but that's essentially correct, isn't it? It is. Uh, in fact, they called it a VW bus or a Volkswagen bus, and I had used it on the road uh, to to go do these gigs. And you know, we'd normally do six nights a week, as I said. And on Sunday, you drive to the next gig somewhere. And I did most of the continental U.S., uh, probably 40 states or so. But after doing that. Uh, and, and frankly, not making a lot of money. I had a lot of fun, but didn't make a lot of money. I came home with a VW bus and I had acquired a little bit of equipment on the road and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was probably 21, 22 at the time. And uh, 
I thought, well, at least record my friends. And I, so I would start pulling the bus alongside the nightclub or the school or the church. And I'd run 200 feet of microphone cables in, mic up the, the choir, the preacher, the band, whatever it was. And I'd sit in the bus with headphones and record them. And uh, I would take those recordings from my VW bus uh, to the living room of my 12 by 55 uh, mobile home, very modest. And that's where I would edit the songs in the right order. And then we used to send them away for LPs or albums and that sort of thing. But yeah, that really is the genesis of the company. And, and it was a beat up VW bus. Uh, my mom had wrecked it into a telephone pole. So it had a, uh, got filled with two gallons of Bondo that I did. I rebuilt the engine and spray painted it with 99 cent cans of blue spray paint from Kmart. Uh, it took a lot of cans of blue spray paint to paint it, but that's what I did. So, All right. I'm going to do something really unusual here, and I'm going to fast forward 42 years. So Sweetwater, at that point, primarily an e-commerce retailer, sells all manner of, of gear for making, recording, and performing music. Uh, by that time, you would hit about a billion dollars in annual revenue. Was that right? Well, last year we did a billion six. Uh, uh, so it's pretty amazing. Yeah. It had thousands of employees. We'd have at least 2,000 by that time. Yeah. And I think we're about 2,700 today. Uh, just to give folks an idea of the kind of bulk you did, you would sell, I mean, somewhere close to like 70,000 guitars a year, hundreds of thousands of microphones. Yeah, it's 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 unbelievable. I, I want to know where they all go. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. <laughs> where well, are all these guitar players? 340,000 guitars last year. 340,000. And we open up every guitar that's more than $300 and completely QC it and check it, make sure that it's going to be great out of the box for the customer. Uh, but where do they go? That's what blows me away. I'm, I'm going to really foreshorten this uh, and just ask you about the one, since you I mean, didn't go to business school, nope. what is the, the one principle that you lived by as you were building that company? Uh, to me, that's really easy. Just always, always do the right thing. Uh, you know, those are trite words, uh, but it's just simple. You just do the right thing. And that way you're true to your employees. You're true to your customers. You can always lay your head on the pillow knowing you did the right thing. And if I backed up a little bit, what really set me up for that or the genesis of all that was I was a Boy Scout. And Boy Scouts may not be as popular today as they were back when I was a kid. Um, but a Boy Scout learns to be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, clean, brave, and reverent. Amazing principles to live by personally, but I think they're also amazing principles to live by professionally. And so that's how I've always run all my companies with those principles. But, you know, the fundamental of always, always do the right thing. Treat the customer right all the time. So, again, we are in 2021. Why did you decide that was the time to take a big equity investment from the private equity firm Providence Equity Partners and step back from running the day to day operations? Yeah. So, why did I do it? Um, you know, first off, I didn't need to do it. You know, we were privately held. My wife and I owned the whole company. Um, but we were looking at being able to do other things. Uh, you know, running Sweetwater, it's, it's a serious big time job. And I've got a lot of interests and I want to do some other things. So being able to take some money off the table allowed us to create a foundation. So we created the Serac Family Foundation. And we have some really strong pillars that we try and support with that. Um, and I, I went into the process not thinking I would do it but I was willing to investigate it. And I had set some very strong 
um, again, pillars that that if we were going to sell the company, these people had to match the things that were important to me, taking care of our employees, uh, you know, on and on and on. And, and found a great firm with the Providence folks. You know, it's been a year and a half later, and I'm still just absolutely thrilled. Uh, I'm now investing in other companies that they invest with. Uh, I am still chairman of the board, and my wife and I still own a big piece of the company. So it's it's real important to me that Sweetwater stays true to its guideposts and is successful for our customers and our employees going forward. And uh, I'm just thrilled that Providence uh, has a great reputation. I checked them out pretty thoroughly because, again, I didn't have to do it. It was one of those things where I wanted to do it so I could do some other things. So is, is it accurate to say that Providence has the majority stake in the company? They do have the majority stake. So the buck stops with them. About how much did you make on the sale? How much I make on the sale? That's a big number. It's more than any, I'm not going to give you a number, but it's more than any human should have. I, I'm very blessed. But, you know, I did work at it for 42 years, sacrificed a lot, especially in the early days. Um, and, but they they took really good care of me. But, you know, again, I'm still, I love the business. I love the industry. I'm going next week to our international trade show and I'm still actively involved. I just don't have to be there every day like I used to be. I'm going to guess the Providence wasn't the first private equity company uh, to pitch an investment or someone coming along trying to acquire you. No, in fact, that's happened for a long time, many, many years. We're fortunate. We had 42 years of every year. Our top line and our bottom line were better than the year before. And it doesn't take long for the reputation to get out. And so, uh, and I, I honestly thought I would die at my desk. I had no interest in, in selling the company, but then a combination of things and the way they uh, were able to offer me some time to do other stuff, including start the foundation and run the other businesses. And it also, to be honest, it solved the, an IRS inheritance tax problem. Uh, one of the challenges is you grow a business, you, you spend all this energy, time, and, and frankly, you pay taxes through the years. And then when you die, you turn around and give another 40% to the government. And I had always invested heavily back into the company, so I didn't have the hundreds of millions of dollars it would take to pay the IRS. And so this was an interesting way to put some money aside to pay the IRS when the day comes and so on and so forth. But it was just okay. a great move all the way around. And mm -hmm. again, my big deal was that it wasn't going to affect our customers and it wasn't going to affect our employees. And I can honestly tell you a year and a half later, you know, of course, the company's still rocking as long as we keep rocking. Nobody's going to mess with us. But, you know, there hasn't been a change in employee or really anything to the negative. There have been a lot of changes to the positive. You know, I would say that was one of the things I felt. At this point, even though I'd grown it from zero to a $1.4 billion company, in some ways, I was starting to hold the company back, becoming a little bit uh, risk adverse. Uh, I didn't like taking out loans. I, I had been you know, debt-free for a long time. And some of the things that we needed to do, frankly, needed more money. And I, I'm just not sure I would have been willing to do it. So they were able to step in and, and uh, do things a little bit faster, which is why, as an example, we opened a warehouse out in Arizona uh, last fall, which... I would have taken more time to do it. And they're willing to jump in and do it faster and that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. it's just been a great relationship all the way around. Now, tell me more about the Surak Family Foundation. What are the, the areas sure. of focus? So we started it with, with a bunch of the proceeds from, from the sale. And my wife and I are really interested in about four pillars. And uh, the first one, of course, is arts. And so we're trying to support all kinds of arts, particularly with, with young children and older adults. Uh, so almost anything culturally that's happening in Northeast Indiana, and frankly, a lot around the country, we support. Uh, another pillar is mental health. And uh, mental health is just so awful today. And it's affecting so many people. And, and we're reading about it all the time. But a few years ago, you didn't read about it. It was kind of a stigma. 
today it's, it's definitely much more understood and, and, and more to learn, actually. Um, the third one is, is economic development. We're working really hard. Uh, we're building a, a big $80 million building in downtown Fort Wayne. Uh, we've been working in southeast Fort Wayne, which is the older, depressed part of the community. And uh, we're doing some stuff out there. But and then the, the last one is uh, human welfare, human interest. That I just think it's awful in today's society, especially in the United States of America, that we have people that are hungry or homeless. And so we're just trying to do everything we can to help there. And so those are really our four pillars. It's pretty extraordinary that, I mean, despite the size of the company, you decided to keep it in Fort Wayne for the life of the company. And yes, you are continuing to invest in your hometown. Absolutely. And that was one of the main pillars uh, that I when I started talking to the various capital firms, it was a non-starter for me. If they thought they were going to pull the company, you know, to to Los Angeles or or Nashville or New York, I just wasn't going to do it. I, I wasn't interested. And, you know, I can't swear that it'll never happen, but they understand that was my commitment and they made the commitment to me. And and there's no reason to. I mean, we have a great thing going on in Fort Wayne with the 26, 2700 employees now, many have relocated from around the country. They love Fort Wayne. They love Indiana. It's a great place. Uh, to have a business. It's a great place to raise your family. Um, and, and Fort Wayne particularly is really on the move. We're one of the few cities in, in the Midwest that's having a population growth right now over the last few years. So okay. it's a great community, great community. It's a great state to do business in. Can you give me I mean, a sense of the scope of the of, of the foundation grants? I mean, for example, for 2022, just give us a sense of how much you yeah, sure. for that for profits? Yeah, that that's public information. So you could you could easily go find our nine ninety. We initially put a hundred million dollars into the foundation. Um, what you won't find, well, you actually will find this eventually. Uh, I knew there were several projects that I wanted to do. That normally, let me back up. If you normally have a hundred million dollar foundation, you think that it's going to give off about five percent a year, and so you would think you would invest about five million. Uh, because we had several pet projects, and frankly, it's a big thing we did for Taylor University and my daughter's uh, private school here in Fort Wayne, Canterbury, and stuff we did at Trine. We knew we wanted to jumpstart some of those campaigns. So our first year, we gave away $10 million, which is more than the required amount, and we're going to do something similar this year. And we hope to add to that foundation in the future. So Now, I also gather that, I mean, starting maybe 12, 15 years ago, Separate from, from Sweetwater, uh, you have founded or purchased several companies that currently operate under the uh, umbrella Surak Enterprises. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. Okay. Several of them are related to aviation. What is your attraction to aviation? That's an interesting question, but I think every boy and maybe every girl today loves the idea of flying. Uh, you know, my dad was a private pilot. Being an engineer, a lot of engineers back in the 50s, 60s were private pilots. And I flew in little airplanes with him a lot. I, I wasn't really personally interested in learning to fly. Uh, and then as a company, we you know started renting or chartering planes, and then we eventually bought our own, and we've upgraded a couple of times. And even then, I wasn't interested in flying. But uh, about uh, 13, 14 years ago, I saw a friend flying in a helicopter. And I went to him. I said, oh, my gosh, this looks like a lot of fun. And he said, well, you should get your license. Next thing you do, I know... I go home and I start working on my wife. And that Christmas, she gave me a, a how to fly helicopter book and a log book from the FAA. And I start taking lessons the next year. And, and helicopters, I don't know, it's just that I was, I was 50 at that time. And uh, there's just something about uh, man over matter, you know, and, and being able to control that thing. It was just another skill to learn. And 
and I love flying helicopter airplanes and eh, not so much, but helicopters I've flown literally all over the country. Uh, I've been to California back twice. I've been up into Canada. I've been to New Hampshire. I bring one to Florida every winter. I haven't been Northwest. I want to go out to the Seattle area in one someday, but landed on the Rocky mountains at 12,500 feet and got out on this pinnacle, looked around. It, it, it's just, you see the earth in a way that you can never see it in anything else because you're flying slow and you're flying low. A couple of years ago, I did a trip around the Gulf of Mexico. I went to the southern part of Texas and, and going across the Gulf of Mexico, I went into places that swamp boats can't go, you know, bigger boats can't go. It's it just, it's a fascinating thing from my point of view. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right. We're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and our conversation with Chuck Surak, founder and CEO of Surak Enterprises. So let me go through the aviation-related businesses real quick and uh, just kind of let me know what they do. This might be deadly obvious. Aviation specialty insurance. Uh, that one's pretty obvious. We sell insurance to pilots, to flight schools, uh, and it's a, it takes a special type of insurance and knowledge more than that. And so uh, the company that I acquired over 10 years ago uh, with one one person, and we've grown it, it's doing really, really well. And basically sell to flight schools and, and people that have hangars and airplanes and helicopters and all that sort of stuff. That just seems like the least glamorous thing you could do in aviation. <laughs> Why was that appealing to you? Um, it is not very glamorous. I would agree with you there. You know, everybody's talking about... Um, residual or, or uh, income that continues. And boy, once you get people signed up on these things, every year you just get a percentage of their renewal and it's worked out really well. Enstrom Helicopter Corporation, which I understand you purchased in just last year. Yeah, I just bought them last May. That's kind of one of the unique ones, but I had learned to fly initially on an Enstrom helicopter way back in 2008. And uh, the company had been in trouble for a while. They, were, they actually had a lot of great owners through the years and then not some good owners. And for the last 10 years, they were owned by the Chinese. And uh, last January, they filed bankruptcy. And they were looking for someone to, to, to take them out of bankruptcy. And they had a deal with somebody else. And in the 11th hour, that fell apart. He couldn't come up with the money. And I stepped up last May. And so last May, we had zero employees. Uh, today, we have about 130 employees. Uh, and we just got our first helicopter off the line three weeks ago and took it to the uh, International Helicopter Show in Atlanta two weeks ago. And so you can't imagine the morale boost for all the employees. This is a company up in Menominee, Michigan, which is on the northwest side of Lake Michigan. It's about two hours north of Grand Rapids, or I mean, uh, Green, Bay, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Sorry, Green Bay, Wisconsin. And it's a small little town, but to, to get that employer back going and getting employees back was just an amazing, amazing blessing for that community. And, and the morale of the employees to see a helicopter come off, the, a new helicopter come off the line. Because even in their last few years with the Chinese ownership, they'd been struggling, which is why they ultimately filed bankruptcy. And so it was just a, a, a really great thing. So very happy. Tell me about Sweet Aviation. Sweet Aviation. Um, there we have a flight school. We teach people how to fly airplanes and how to fly helicopters. And we have a maintenance shop so we can fix 
all the airplanes and helicopters. That's another kind of unique story. We had a, a, a really sad but fascinating story that happened out of Fort Wayne about 11 or 12 years ago. Had a great doctor. He was a friend of mine, friend of many people, and he owned the flight school. Well, sadly, uh, he was going to celebrate his son's scholarship uh, up in Michigan, and he ran into bad weather and crashed his airplane and killed himself and his second wife. And if you back up before that, but his son lived, by the way, if you back up before that, several years later, he killed, he had another accident and he killed his first wife and a young boy and a young son. And he lived through the first accident and his son, Austin Hatch is his name. His son, Austin, lived through both crashes, the first one and the second one going to celebrate. But he, of course, lost his dad, his brother, his sister, and frankly, his mom and his second mom through the whole thing. Well, anyway, after all that, the estate came to me and said, would you be interested in buying the flight school? And I said, no, nah, there's no uh, money in aviation. They said, would you at least talk to us? I said, yeah, I'll talk to you. So I went and looked at it. And I was really impressed with the fellow that was running it for uh, Dr. Hatch. And uh, the young fellow who is our general manager today had run that business back in the 2008, 9, and 10 recession and didn't lose any money. He didn't make any money, but he didn't lose any money. And I thought, what a great guy. I loved him. I loved his wife. And uh, I thought that, you know, with my background, I could help support him. And I, I thought we could make it successful. And frankly, if we didn't, they didn't want a lot of money. All they wanted was the price of the airplanes. And so I figured I could always sell the airplanes if it didn't work out. Well, fast forward to today, and it's a really, really great business. We've upgraded all the airplanes, all the helicopters, upgraded our maintenance. We've just added a new location. We're not only on, at Smith Field in Fort Wayne, but we just moved to Auburn. We have a second location up there and just doing really, really well. And then back to helicopters, we have Sweet Helicopters. What happens there? Sweet Helicopters is a VIP helicopter service, and we primarily fly people around from Indianapolis to Fort Wayne, Indianapolis to Chicago, Fort Wayne to Detroit, anywhere where it's faster in the helicopter, but doesn't make sense for a plane or a jet necessarily. And the great thing about a helicopter is you can land anywhere as long as you have permission of the landowner. So we'll pick people up at their homes. We'll drop them off at a winery. It doesn't have to have an airport and that sort of thing around. Uh, but it's a 135 charter operation. Uh, we also do all of the helicopters in and out of the Indy 500, which will be happening here in May. Uh, so we'll we'll take three, 400 passengers in and out from either the heliport downtown or one of the regional airports and bring them right into the track. So it's real easy. You don't have to deal with all the traffic. Oh, I mean, yeah. So it's like it's race day. Yep, absolutely. I, I do not want to spend three hours. Uh, exactly. We'll zoom we'll you down in there from one of those out locations in about five or six minutes. So it's pretty easy. And then the, the latest thing with Sweet Helicopters is uh, as of March 1st, we took over the air ambulance portion of Parkview Hospital, all their helicopters. And so we manage their helicopters and their pilots and mechanics and all that. So it's, a, again, a pretty big operation with the helicopter business. You know, there are a lot of people who are interested in aviation. They got a pilot's license. Maybe they buy some planes or a helicopter. Seems to be kind of extraordinary that you just collect aviation-related companies. <laughs> it seems like a collection of big headaches. Um, yeah. It sounds like you you have a lot of people who are really kind of doing the day-to-day -day work for you. I do. I have great managers at all of our businesses, and uh, I, I do like the aviation part, and I understand it enough to be dangerous at least. But dangerous is probably the wrong word for aviation. I do understand it enough to know a little bit what's going on, and I'm a helicopter pilot myself, so I mean, I'm definitely around it all the time. So Sweet Helicopters brings us to the topic of the downtown Indianapolis heliport. So for folks who are not familiar with the heliport, it's located on five acres at 51 South New Jersey, which means it's right off of East Washington Street. 
It's owned by the Indianapolis Airport Authority, which is a municipal corporation that also owns and operates Indianapolis International Airport. The authority recently asked the Federal Aviation Administration for permission to decommission the heliport. And the reason why they decided uh, it, is just, it is not used nearly as much as it used to be, and the annual expense is uh, prohibitive, something like $700,000 a year. city of Indianapolis was behind this because it sees a lot of opportunity in that sector of downtown to uh, redevelop existing properties. Now, the city has an agreement with the airport authority that it can pursue redevelopment of the heliport once it's decommissioned. So there's the but. A group of business leaders, aviation experts, and the Indiana Department of Transportation are against this. And my understanding is that you are helping lead that effort. Am I reading that right? I think it would be a real shame for a world-class city like Indianapolis to lose their downtown heliport. Yes, the traffic has waned over the last few years, but IU Health is still there and would love to stay there with their helicopters. And um, I believe that if we could keep the heliport open, we could resurrect it again. I think, you know, with our businesses and other people, it, it's a great asset for for not just Indianapolis, but the whole state of Indiana. Uh, every Colts game, there's six to 10 helicopters there. Most Pacers games, there's a few helicopters. Concerts, there's helicopters there. Uh, we bring people down that are business leaders, that are politicians. Uh, I've flown the last couple of governors in and out of there. It, it's just a great asset. And we're on the verge of some new technology called eVTOL. Uh, which is a vertical takeoff and lift type of aircraft. Um, and they're going to be able to fly to the suburbs of your community much quieter and more efficiently. And we're going to want a place to land them downtown. And that vertiport is just, or the heliport is just set up perfectly for that. Right. And when you say we, I mean, that's the aviation industry. That's the aviation industry. That's Not correct. the Truck aviation industry. No, but I may be, I may be part of it. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, so I, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily leading it, but I'm trying to stop the heliport from being prematurely closed. And I did meet with the uh, mayor about a year and three or four months ago and explained my concern. And, you know, they've been uh, going through their steps, but they, they're, they, I understand they're reconsidering their thoughts. Uh, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but, but that's what I've been told, you know, indirectly. And uh, it just, it is a great asset. The bottom line, it's used a lot more than the airport authority thinks that it is. And I just think it would be a shame to lose such a great asset in central downtown Indianapolis. And you personally urged the FAA to deny the the request, the decommission. Yes, we have. Now, how would closing the airport affect suite helicopters? I don't know. That's a great question. We still could fly to the regional airports. But even if you think about, you know, the international airport, it's not as convenient as being able to land downtown and walk or, or Uber two or three or four blocks to get to all the various, you know, restaurants and uh, maybe not so much the, the mall anymore, but but clearly you're only a few blocks away from where the Colts play, the Pacers play, now where the Indy 11 uh, stadium's going to come, uh, and then all the government sort of things that happen downtown. And so it, it would not be as convenient for our customers if they have to now go to, they'd have to go to the international airport. And that's a, that's a 10, 15, 20 minute drive downtown, depending on traffic and all of that. You've told us that you are interested in purchasing the heliport yourself to ensure that it remains operational and available for current uses and and whatever comes next. I, I would absolutely do that. I've expressed my interest <clears throat> to the mayor and the airport authority, uh, whether I buy it, lease it, you know, and I'd want to keep it open to the public so others could use it. I don't think it's a particularly big moneymaker, but I think it's one of those assets 
uh, as I said, that I think would be great for the, for the city and for the state. And I'm willing to invest in it to make that happen. Would there be somewhere else downtown where you could develop a heliport if this doesn't work out? I'm concerned that it would be difficult to do because you do need great cooperation from the FAA. You need cooperation from the city of Indianapolis, uh, the Indiana Department of Transportation. And getting all of those people aligned and agreeing is very difficult, and particularly getting the FAA to approve it. This is already approved. It's already to go. There's no reason to turn it, you know, to shut it down right now. Could there be other heliports downtown? Maybe. Uh, I don't think they would be as nice. I mean, this is five acres of land right downtown, which is also why the mayor and airport authority are interested in it. But I, I think it's a very strategic location and it's already all the investments been made in it. We've already used federal dollars to to keep to open the, the heliport and to keep it going for the last several years. Um, so, so I think that's also a detriment. So I want to ask you about the maneuver that you tried to weaken opportunities for redeveloping the area. So last year, one of your companies. Sweet Real Estate spent $8.2 million to buy a 2.5-acre property at 603 East Washington Street. That's the site directly north of the heliport's launching pad. And, and what was the play there? What was your uh, your strategy? You know, I don't know if it was. It was a multitude of things, uh, but the building came up for sale. And frankly, it was a, it was a reasonable investment uh, from my point of view. And I would also say, you know, this has been in print already, that the properties are probably more valuable together, the five plus the two and a half to a developer, there's much more to develop. And so strategically, if I have the the, the 10 story building you're referring to, and, and I don't make that available for sale, it makes the five acres of the Hilliport a little less desirable. Not saying you couldn't build on it, but it's less desirable. So it, it is an attempt to dissuade the city from redeveloping the area. You know, that's awful. Those are awful strong words. Uh, and I would I wouldn't normally have said them. You said them. But but yeah, that's that's I guess that was part of the thinking. And again, I must tell you, as much as anything, um, you know, I've invested in a lot of property in Fort Wayne. Indianapolis, I think, is a great world class city, even with our years of struggles downtown. It's an amazing city and it's not a bad city to be investing in. And so regardless of what happens to Hilliport, I don't mind having eight and a half million dollars invested in that building. We're right now in the process of uh, updating the windows and, and fixing a bunch of leaks and those sort of things. And, and you know, there's some uh, nonprofit businesses that are in there. They're doing some great social services. And so it's a great way for me also to give back to Indianapolis. So the process of determining whether the airport authority can decommission the heliport is still proceeding. And as you said, Indianapolis officials have said that they're going to do an analysis of the benefits and challenges presented by continuing the downtown heliport operations. How do you feel about that so far? Is that a win? It's not closed, so I would call that a win. I don't know how fast they're going to do that. If they're really saying that in earnest, I would like to think at some point, if that's really what their plan is, maybe they would call me because I've reached out to them several times and say, how would you use it? And how would, you know, why do you think it would, I would love to help them with their plan going forward. I've not heard from anybody at the airport authority or the mayor's office since all this came out a couple of weeks ago. Is it fair to say that uh, with the, the different things you're working on with the foundation and the Surrey companies that you are maybe more busy than you were three years ago? Oh, you're starting to sound like my wife now. That's that's exactly correct. I am more busy than I've ever been, uh, Mason, but I'm loving it. I really am. I'm having a lot of fun and I don't have to get down to the, the small details every day. I'm doing more broad stroke, more vision. I love working with the leaders of all my companies and just making sure we're going the same direction and all that. But yeah, I'm busier than I've ever been, but I also love what I'm doing. Well, thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day.
My thanks again to Chuck Surak. If you want to learn more about the debate over Indianapolis downtown heliport and its potential role in attracting aviation innovation, you can read Mickey Shuey's cover story in the latest edition of IBJ. And before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few other stories in this week's edition I want to bring to your attention. First up, as we have discussed at length in recent weeks, downtown Indianapolis's vibrancy has been dulled a bit by some national post-pandemic trends, including a decrease in office workers, an increase in homelessness and crime, and the continued decline of downtown malls. Taylor Wooten polls the candidates for Indianapolis mayor on how they would deal with those challenges and more. Also in this week's issue, Dave Lindquist details how local restaurants are refining food preparation and the customer experience now that more people are ordering through mobile apps. And John Russell explains how the potential for turning cow manure into natural gas is gaining more converts in Indiana's energy sector. You can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or, of course, online at IBJ.com. I will say it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business, community, and economy if you are a subscriber. And you may not know that we have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business, and now works out to just about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. Thank you.